Hey, Christ community, so glad you are here. Greetings to our West Campus and our Traditions venue and our 15th Street Campus, all of you, all y'all, as they say down in Texas. So we're really glad you're here. Hey, uh, before, we, before we jump into the message, I have an important announcement to make. Within um, the past few weeks, there have been some exciting developments happening as it relates to um, our vision for a West Campus um, or our, our permanent West Campus. Given the, the costs and the challenges of bringing infrastructure to our property on 83rd Avenue and West 10th, we've been looking for another property. Um, and we believe that we've found it, um, a property that already has sewer, water, electrical, green space, and that we can purchase for less than the price of the sewer line. Um, so. We are having a congregational meeting in two weeks, um, Sunday, September 30th at 6.30 p.m. here at the 15th Street Campus to give more details about this and also to vote on this purchase because we need congregational approval. So please be in prayer about this. Can't wait to share more details at that meeting. Okay, so we are in week two of a teaching series entitled Wholeheartedness. I'm excited that e-groups are going through this material and new e-groups have been formed just to go through this for seven weeks. I really believe that this material has the power to significantly impact our lives. And that power increases when we're able to process these things in community with, with other people. It's not too late to dive in to an e-group. There's more information on our website or our newsletter. So feel free to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. It's the story of Israel's first two kings. Um, but I recently came to realize that this book is actually way more than that. What we see in the book of 1 Samuel, what we see in the story of these two kings is a vivid picture of two very different ways of living. King David, king number two, lived his life with a whole heart. He embraced wholeheartedness, which we'll be looking at later in this series. But before we get there, we need to spend some time looking at king number one, whose name is Saul. Saul did not live with a whole heart. His heart was damaged. It was infected with something that infects many, if not all, of our hearts. And the result of that Infection of his heart and damage to his heart was tragic. I mean, Saul's whole life is this tragic picture of lost potential. This picture of one bad decision after another bad decision. He could never seem to get it right. So what happened? Why did Saul's life get derailed? Now, the simple answer to that question is disobedience, right? Saul chose to disobey, and because of that choice and those choices, his life got messed up. But a few years ago, while I was reading the story of Saul, God revealed, he opened my eyes to see what Saul's root problem was. And when I realized this, everything else in Saul's story made complete sense. So look with me at 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. This occurs right after another poor decision on Saul's part where God commanded him to do something, but he did it partly, but not fully. And then he tried to justify himself. Now, again, we could just say, oh, Saul had, a, had an obedience problem, but that was not the root issue. Look at what God says to Saul when he rebukes him for his disobedience. Verse 17, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? God says that Saul is little in his own eyes. What does that mean? Another version says, though you think little of yourself, 
See, God is talking about how Saul feels about himself. Saul is king of Israel, and yet in his heart of hearts, he feels little. He felt little in his own eyes. Saul struggled his whole life with this deep level of insecurity. He saw himself as little, as inadequate. See, now there's a word for this, and it's not humility. It is not humility. The word for what Saul is experiencing is shame. What ultimately derailed Saul's life was shame. And it's the same thing that often derails our lives. Dr. Brene Brown is an expert kind of in this area. Her, one of her YouTube videos on shame has been viewed like 20 million times. She's also written several books on this subject. But she defines shame as the intensely painful feeling of believing we are flawed and unworthy of loving and belonging. Let me read that again. Shame is the intensely painful feeling of believing that we are flawed and unworthy of loving and belonging. See, that's shame. It's this feeling deep down in us that there is something wrong with us, that I am flawed, I'm a disappointment, I am unworthy of love. See, shame is different than guilt. Let's say you get a D on a test or you do poorly on, on some project at work or you get evaluated at work and you get a really lousy, you know, evaluation. As you walk away from that experience, you feel horrible. Guilt says that was not good. You could do better. You should have worked harder on that project. You should have studied more. You blew that. That's guilt. Shame says you're stupid. You are incompetent. You are such a loser. You don't even deserve to work here. Who do you think you are? You idiot. Do you notice the difference? See, guilt is feeling bad for something we've done. Shame is feeling bad for who we are. And here's the deal about shame. For many of us, shame is such a part of our thinking and living, we don't even recognize it. It is so intuitive. It's so instinctive to us. We don't even recognize it. We don't even recognize how often we put ourselves down. You jerk, what were you thinking? You're such an idiot. Shame is wreaking havoc in our lives. And often we don't even see it. We don't even realize it. I didn't for years. I mean, this is my story. I didn't for years. I was 31 years old before I began to realize how shame was negatively impacting my life. I didn't even know what the word probably meant before that. Had no idea it was impacting my life the way it was. I had no clue up to that point in my life, 31 years old, I had no clue how shame was wreaking havoc as, as just like it did in Saul's life. See, once we realize what Saul's heart issue was, so many other episodes in Saul's life start to make complete sense. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, early on in the book, we are introduced to Saul as a teen, he's a teenager, um, which just tells us all, I mean, shame hits every age group, every age group. Saul's a teenager. We're told he was a handsome young man, head taller than everyone else. Um, and he was sent by his father to find some donkeys that had been lost. And on that trip, he meets the prophet Samuel, to whom God told Samuel, God had revealed that Saul was going to be the, the, the king of Israel. And so Samuel takes a bottle of oil 
And he anoints Saul, speaking over him the Lord's destiny for his life. I mean, this is an amazing thing. And Saul then has this miraculous encounter with the Spirit of God who comes directly upon him. And Saul Saul starts prophesying. And all these wild things happen. I mean, this is huge. And so Saul, after all this happens, he travels back to his home. And his uncle asks him what happened. And all Saul says is, we found the donkeys. Typical teenager, I guess. But, uh, you know, he, he doesn't say anything about Samuel anointing him as king of Israel. So then Samuel summons the people of Israel to gather so that he, Samuel, can introduce Saul, their new king, so he can introduce them to their new king, their first king. I mean, this is like, this is inauguration day. This is huge. So when it gets to the moment when Samuel is supposed to introduce Saul as king, no one can find Saul. He is nowhere to be found. I mean, this is the biggest day of his life, and he's not there. They can't find him. And so they inquire of the Lord, God, do you have any idea where where Saul is? Um, And and God says, verse 22 of 1 Samuel 10, yeah, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Saul is hiding. Why? He is little in his own eyes. He doesn't think he is up for the task. He doesn't think he has what it takes. And so he goes and hides. See, this is what shame does to us, men and women. It causes us to withdraw from God's calling on our life. It causes us to shrink back from our full potential. The voice of shame whispers to us, you don't have what it takes to be a godly husband. You don't have what it takes to be a good mom. You'll never amount to anything. God could never use you after what you've done or the family that you come from. You'll never be able to defeat this sin. You might as well give up. You don't really have anything to offer, so why don't you just kind of stay huddled in your own little world? Don't try anything new. Don't volunteer for that ministry. God could never really use you. You're not smart enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not gifted enough. You're not, you fill in the blank enough. That's what shame sounds like. And a lot of us, are so used to hearing its voice that we assume it's true. We don't even question it anymore. We assume it's true, and it keeps us from all that God has for us. So later in 1 Samuel 10, after Saul is inaugurated, they finally found him, got him there, and he inaugurated him. Lots of people are excited. Hey, we got a king. The first time we got a king, they were excited, but a few people are not. So look at verse 27. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Do you hear the voice of shame in these people's words? He doesn't have what it takes. (laughs) How can he save us? And notice how Saul responds. He doesn't. He kept silent. Now, what was going on in that silence? I think we know. Saul was letting their comments reinforce the shame that he already felt in his heart. They're right. I don't have what it takes. I'm not cut out for this. And that shame just continued to wreak havoc in Saul's life. It continued to undermine and hinder God's calling upon his life. So let me just say right up front here. My goal in this message today is not to make us feel good, okay? My goal is not to make us feel good. My goal is to help all of us begin to see 
where shame is impacting us because often it's really hard to see. And some of us here, we have maybe for decades, we have not seen it. It's really hard to see. So my goal is to help us see. And, and here's the deal. Until we see shame, we aren't able to let God deal with it. We got to see it. So our focus today and next week is to help us see where and how shame is negatively impacting our lives. Now, as I was planning out this message several months ago in this series, I thought it would be really helpful for us to not only get a man's perspective on shame, but also to get a woman's perspective, because sometimes men and women experience shame a bit differently. So I asked a friend of mine, Mariana Wakefield, to share for a few minutes how shame is often experienced by women. And then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to talk about how shame is often experienced by men. Now, as Mariana comes up here, I want to state as strongly as I can that what she has to say is just as important for us men to hear as it is for the women to hear. Because the reality is, most of us men have no clue how shame is impacting the women around us. Our wife, our sister, our daughters, our mother, our friends, our girlfriend. And because we are ignorant of this, we often contribute to their shame. And we don't even know it. We're actually contributing to their shame. So all of us, let's listen to what God has laid on Mariana's heart about how shame impacts women. Hey everyone, I want to start off by saying that several weeks ago when we started studying shame, I honestly kind of felt like, eh, I don't know how much I really struggle with shame and maybe some of you are feeling that way today. And as I started reading more about it, I came to understand that shame comes disguised in so many different ways. And like Pastor Allen is talking about, our goal is to figure out those ways. And one of them, for example, that really hit home for me is perfectionism. Perfectionism is the birthplace of shame. Why in the world are you trying so hard to be perfect? And comparison and judgment. So I just do encourage you to open your minds and your hearts to search what does it look like in your own life. I'm going to share two main areas that uh, they found that women struggle the most with shame. This, even though this applies to my life, it's not my opinion. Brene Brown, who... Uh, Pastor Allen already mentioned she's a PhD in shame, studied shame in women for over 10 years. And those are the two things she has noticed as a pattern that we women struggle with. So the first area is of beauty. Am I beautiful? beautiful enough and how that can cause us to shrink back and not feel like we make the cut. The pressure in the world, what we're supposed to look like is incredible. This research that I was reading says that only 4%, only 4% of women worldwide consider themselves beautiful. That's alarming. That means that 96% of us think that we're, eh, average at the very most. 
And this problem starts very early. Uh, young girls, even as young as six-year-olds, they already start uh, feeling insecure about the way they look. And by the time they're nine, 50% of girls have dieted. And when they get to high school, 90% of girls diet regularly, even though only 10 to 15% have an actual weight problem. Isn't this crazy because of some standard or some uh, pattern that we see out there that we feel the pressure that that's what we have to compare ourselves to. And if we're not that way, if we don't look that way, then we're not enough. There's the pressure in the world and, and not only in the me media, in the big world, but in our in, uh, personal interactions. I remember back in school when I was in middle school and high school and I would see the boys passing little papers around and looking at us and you knew exactly what was going on. They were voting. Who is the prettiest girl in the class? How does that make a young girl feel like? So that's the pressure of the world. The second enemy that we have that affect us too is, this, is Satan. We know that we live a spiritual reality. And if Satan knows that that's an area of vulnerability, I mean, if I'm your enemy, I know you're vulnerable in that area. Oh yeah, I'm going to whisper lies to steal your confidence, to mess up with your self-esteem, mess up with your body image and make you just give up altogether because you don't, you're not, there's nothing special about you. There's nothing that shines about you. And I also do want to make sure to say this. Maybe some of you are not the girly girl kind of girl, but this has nothing to do with how much time you spend in front of the mirror. This is about how vulnerable our hearts are when we don't feel like we're pretty enough. And so Satan comes and whispers, and I've seen this in my life, that the problem with these lies is when you believe them, right? And then you get the whisper that, oh, you're not looking so good. And then you put on your jeans and it doesn't button anymore. And then you go out, somebody make a comment and you look around, there's a magazine with something that looks extremely unattainable as far as beauty goes. And you just put it all together, A plus B plus C. That's just now a fact. It's not a lie anymore. And then that's when we lose our battles, right? Satan's lies won't matter unless you believe them. And while God is crazy for you to see who you are, Satan wants you to focus on who you're not. Now, there's a third enemy that affects us, and I am very sad to inform this because that's yourself. We are our own worst critics. We are so harsh on ourselves. I remember, too, when I was... Lots of teenage memories here, you guys, I'm sorry. When I was young and I would write down on a piece of paper everything that I thought was wrong with the way I looked. I, my weight, my hair, my upper lip hair, the shape of my face, my nose, and on and on and on. You guys know how it goes. You just kind of get blinded and you see things that are not even there. And then every, every day I would sit, uh, pull up my drawer to do my homework and there was the list and I would look through say oh this is getting better oh this is still terrible I was able to fix this I'm hiding this and it's everything that you feel like you need to fix or hide about yourself we are our own this other research says 80% of women confess 
that there is something beautiful about every woman, but they are unable to see their own beauty. Can't we see beautiful things about each other? But how about when it comes to us? So I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the subject of the lust of our eyes, right? The Bible talks about the lust of the eyes. With sin, our eyes got corrupted and we got blinded, right? We don't see things right. And we, our eyes are attracted to things of the world. And I'm a firm believer that's the problem here. You know those carnival rides that you go in the distorting mirrors that make you look taller, shorter, wider? thinner and zigzag and I believe that is what happens to our eyes we're not able to see ourselves the way God does and that's a problem so this is the whole uh, problem <laughs> the whole temptation and the whole uh, shame causing area of beauty and we see we we need to think about how uh, we see consequences of this in our lives, okay? So let's say, yes, your, your eyes are starting to open up for this. How do you see the consequences of that, of your self-esteem or depression or eating disorders or your relationship with people around you and you feeling less in comparison or in the intimacy of your marriage, if your body image is altered and it's not right, how does that affect your sex life? Buckle up, here's the second area, holding it all together, doing it all. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? There's this incredible amount of things in our shoulders that we feel pressured that we need to be, you know, superwoman and be able to do it all and take care of our family, of our house, be a good wife, take care of the children and work and assist your mother who needs help and be a good friend, have a social life, work out and take care of your health and on and on and on and how in the world are we supposed to do that excellently and the problem is we look around and we think everybody's getting it except me is that true so um, motherhood, right? Let's talk about motherhood for a second. Is one of the, so we, we feel like we're juggling all these balls and we're praying to God that we're not going to drop these balls. But I feel like motherhood is this one ball that on its own has the power to bring so much shame. You may be feeling good about yourself and then you go out with your kids and then your child decides to throw the biggest fit the world has ever seen in public, of course in front of your friends many times and then you're like yeah what are they thinking about me and how often do we think I am not a good enough mom moms I know you I talk with you we feel that way way too often I am ruining my kids lives I am certainly not good enough I don't have what it takes for this job. And then there's Facebook envy. You're looking at all oh, what all the other people are doing and oh, they're, they're getting it. They're doing it all except to me. I want to finish 
uh, by showing you a picture. On Mother's Day, here at our church, we're going to take a family picture at the photo booths that they set up. It's so fun. So I asked my friend, can you please take a picture for me? And he said, sure. And what I didn't know was that he started taking pictures from the moment I handed him my phone. So after he gave the phone back to me and I was looking through the pictures, here is a summary of what I saw. Kids on the floor, upside down, rolling around. Me, you can go to the next one. Me begging, please, for goodness sake, let's take a picture. And then finally, ah, aren't we pretty? <laughs> I have a perfect family, you guys. <laughs> Isn't this what we live? Here's what I'm going to show everybody. This, oh, no, no. This is too shameful. This I hope to God nobody ever sees. We don't want to expose our chaos, our reality of life. But the thing is, if only we start talking to each other, we're going to find out we are all in the same boat because this is what we're all going through. And then later on, we, we have these edited lives and later on, um, my friend says to me, I didn't take these pictures as a joke. I wasn't teasing you. I truly think they're beautiful because they're real life. Now, women, are we going to be able to see the beauty in the reality of our lives? Are we going to be able to see the beauty in who we are? How are we allowing all these things to bring shame into our hearts? Pastor Allen will come back to share about men. Amen. Great job. Mariana. So I want to take the time that we have left and share about how shame often impacts men. Now, this comes from my own experience, um, as well as my interaction with Saul's life as revealed in 1 Samuel, looking through this, this lens. <clears throat> now, I realize um, that there is a lot of overlap. I want to be clear about this. There's a lot of overlap when it comes to how women and men experience shame. Some of you women may resonate with what I'm going to share about Saul's struggles. And some of you men may resonate some with what Mariana shared. We're not trying to create these rigid boundaries between how genders experience shame. We're simply wanting to offer a male and a female perspective. With, again, our goal being to help all of us begin to see how shame might be impacting our lives. And so I want to go back to 1 Samuel 15, where God rebukes Saul with that, that comment that we looked at earlier, though you were little in your own eyes. And what prompted God to say this to Saul? Well, we see earlier in chapter 15 that God had given Saul a very clear command. Because of the Amalekites, how poorly they had treated the people of Israel, after the exodus and how evil and, and destructive that that culture was, because of all of that history, God commanded Saul to completely destroy them. Every living thing was to be destroyed, including the livestock. So Saul and his army 
attack the Amalekites and they defeat them. But instead of destroying everything like God said to do, they decided to keep the king alive and they decided to keep the best of the sheep and the cattle for themselves. And so then we find out later um, that Saul's reason for disobeying was because he was afraid of his men. Who, who wanted to take the plunder for themselves. He was afraid of them. And we're going to talk more about that next week because that's a manifestation of shame. But what I want us to focus on is, is something that Saul does after his victory, something that is so representative of how we men often deal with our shame. Look at verse 12. This is after Saul's victory over the Amalekites. We know Saul's deeply insecure. He's giving in to the army's demands because he's afraid of them. We know all of that. So what does Saul do right after this victory? Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up, the prophet got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. What is Saul doing after his victory? He's building a monument to himself. That's how we as men often deal with our shame. It's how we often deal with our insecurity. We build monuments to hide behind. Look at how successful I am. Look at this business I built. Look at the size of my church. Look at my six-pack abs. Look at my golf handicap or my hunting trophies. Look at my wonderful wife. Look at my GPA. Look at my IQ. Look at my musical abilities. We need people to see these monuments. We need them to affirm us as being successful, right, wealthy, intelligent, etc. Why? Because deep inside, we don't feel like we measure up. We have to prove our value and our worth by our successes, by our intelligence, by whatever. I mean, this is my story. I mean, this is my story. In the first few years here at this church, I was so focused on succeeding, on growing this church. I worked long hours. I was driven. I was intense. And I was convinced all along that I was doing the Lord's work, right? This is all about God. This is all about Jesus. I just want him to be glorified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But God, God used some panic attacks in that season to make me realize that my workaholism and my intensity were not ultimately about God at all. My ministry was my monument. My ministry was my monument. It was my way to try and silence the voice of shame deep within me, that voice that said that I'm not enough and I don't have what it takes. And so a growing church, a successful ministry was my way of proving that I had worth and value. For many of us, for many of us, men and women, our shame is rooted in this question. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be a mom, to business, whatever it is? Do I have what it takes? Our lives are spent answering that question. And often our lives are, they're desperately trying to answer that question through our own performance, through our own ability, our own successes. So then the, the question gets answered, right? So we're constantly building monuments to prove we have worth. And the problem is, it's destroying our lives. It's destroying our relationships. In the early years of my ministry here, I was a lousy husband. 
I didn't listen well. I wasn't present when I was home because I was always thinking about work. I didn't really tend to my wife's heart. I was so afraid of being exposed as a failure, so focused on trying to prove myself. I just had to keep performing. I had to keep succeeding. The bar just, oh, we had this many last, but we got to get more people next time. The bar just kept getting raised. I was driven and totally ignoring my wife's heart because it was all about my own shame being covered up, proving I had value. And this is how so many of us men live our lives. Honestly, it's all we know. It's all we know. We just keep hiding behind monuments. We keep our hearts hidden. And then we wonder why our wife seems distant and cold or why our children seem kind of distant from us or relationships. We don't have many friends or whatever. We just kind of wonder about that. I had a wife once tell me, she said, in 20, in 20 years of marriage, I can remember my husband apologizing maybe three times. He was unable to admit fault, and yet he could and often did point out her failures all the time. Could never apologize for his own, but he could always point out what she was doing wrong. And we might say, oh, that's pride. He's just a prideful man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's often rooted in something deeper. It's ultimately rooted in shame. Because that's what shame does. It keeps us hiding behind our monuments of invincibility and of being right and of knowing more than anyone else and of being successful and all that. So what happens is we're hiding behind those monuments. So then we're very critical of other people, very critical of other people. But often we're unwilling to admit our own weaknesses because we're hiding. It's terribly lonely. Our monuments are terribly lonely because deep down, we don't know if anyone would really love us for who we really are. So we just have to keep performing. We have to keep this distance because we don't know if anyone would love us if they really knew us. Now, this can manifest in so many ways. I, I was recently visiting with a college student um, who admitted feeling awkward and anxious in his conversations, especially with girls. And he, he, um, he told me that he hated any moment of silence, any moments of silence in the conversation. And, and so he felt the need to always be asking questions just to keep the conversation going. Um, and so as we were just kind of processing this, and as we processed it, he began to realize that his continual question asking was actually a way to hide. Because when you ask questions, you're always in control of the conversation. Right? You're always in control of the conversation when you ask questions. It was a way for him to hide. It was a way to actually keep people from getting too close to him because he would just ask another question. And then he wouldn't have to divulge anything on his own. And the reason he kept asking questions is this deeply rooted fear that he wasn't enough. And if they saw, if this girl saw what he was really like, they would bolt. They wouldn't be interested. So his shame was actually negatively impacting his relationships. The, the reality is shame whispers to all of us, men and women, talking to all of us now, the shame whispers to all of us, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not handsome enough. You're not strong enough. You're not intelligent enough. You're not witty enough. You're not, you don't, you don't have what it takes. And that voice is impacting 
all of us is impacting us in significant ways. It is hindering us from living a life of wholeheartedness. It is hindering us from achieving our God-given potential and from taking risks that God wants to take. It's, it's damaging our relationships. The impact is huge. So what's the answer for both men and women? What, what is the answer to our shame? Well, in a few weeks in this series, we're going to get to the God's answer, God's antidote for our feelings of shame. But, but an antidote is of no use if we don't realize our need. If I don't realize I'm sick, I'm not going to take the antidote. I'm not going to take the medication for it if I don't even know I'm sick. So an antidote to shame, to go there right now, would not be helpful because an antidote is only helpful if we see our need for the antidote. So as I mentioned earlier, my goal in this message is not to make us feel good. I'm not going to tie this message and end it with a nice little bow. And that's not how we're going to end it. My goal Today is for God to use his word and Mariana and my perspective to help all of us to begin to open our eyes to see where shame has been and is negatively impacting our lives so that we can experience his antidote more fully. Okay, so let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, I ask you right now on behalf of each one of us, would you open our eyes to see where shame is impacting us? And so let me just kind of ask here, how are you experiencing shame? Where do you see yourself as little in your own eyes? Is it your body image? Is it in your perfectionism or your, your critical judgmental attitude towards other people? Is it perhaps your perceived failure to keep all the plates spinning? What, what monuments are you hiding behind? What monuments are you building to prove your, your worth to the world? What, what, what things are you hiding behind so that no one discovers who you really are? So let's just think about that in the quiet of our heart. Holy Spirit, show us where are we experiencing shame? God, we, we are just kind of beginning. For some of us, maybe we're just beginning to look. And I, I want to pray your grace and your help in this journey. This isn't a two-minute thing. Oh, we're done now. No, this is a journey. And I pray, Lord, for us in this journey. Maybe you've begun it now. We're going to continue talking about it next week. I pray in these, in these days and weeks here together as a church and as individuals here, you would help us and walk with us on this journey. Help us see where shame is impacting our lives. God, my heart just breaks because Saul never saw it. 
four decades as king. He never saw it, and it destroyed him. We don't want to be Saul. We want to see our shame so that we can allow you to deal with our shame and help us in our shame. So continue to open our eyes. Even as we move on in this service here and our responses with worship and some other things, God, that, that we would continue to have our hearts open. This is, a, this is a journey we're on. But you are walking with us in this. So as we enter into a time of worship, we're also going to engage in the Lord's Supper um, where we remember Christ's death for us on the cross. And folks, remember, the cross was a place of shame. The person who was crucified hung naked and they were crucified as a criminal, publicly crucified. It was a place intentionally for torture and shame. And Jesus did that for us. He took our shame by dying for us on the cross. And so during our worship time, um, we're going we're gonna to have the, the tables are available and we invite you at any point during the worship time, you can come up to a table, grab a piece of bread, which represents Christ's body and, and you can dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for you. And then you can partake right there or you can take it back to your seat. And again, our goal in this time is not to, oh, here's the answer. Jesus is the answer. And it's not to move too quickly past our shame. It's to walk with Jesus in it. And to say, Jesus, would you continue to help me see how shame is impacting my life? So let me pray for us. God, thank you for your body that was given for us, represented by the bread. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us, represented by the juice. And we, as we engage in singing some songs and and, and engaging in the Lord's Supper, Lord, we want our hearts to engage and to just to know you're with us as we're walking this journey, opening our eyes to see our shame. So thank you for taking our shame on the cross. You're an amazing Savior. We love you. Set us free to worship you with our whole being now, we pray.